Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, master, we have worked all night long and have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they had caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In this Lenten season, we are focusing on the life and faith of one of Jesus' disciples that we get to hear the most about. Uh, we are following the story of Peter. And in Peter, we see a person who is both steadfast and unsteady, a dear friend and a betrayer, a follower and a wanderer. In Peter, we often see ourselves, and by following Peter's journey, we get to watch this story of Jesus unfold through the eyes of a normal person who is just trying to figure it out. In this series, uh, we want to affirm that faith is a constant journey of steadfast pursuit, one that will ebb and flow. We want to affirm that wandering is about exploration and not necessarily distance from God. We want to affirm the ways that Peter keeps going. He drops his nets. He will walk on water. He runs to an empty tomb. He swims to the shore to meet the risen Christ. He keeps searching and yearning and loving even after missteps or mistakes. Ultimately, in Peter's story, we are reminded that God loves imperfect people. In fact, time and time again, that is precisely who God claims and calls. This Lent, we will look for ourselves in the stepping stones of Peter's story. We will reflect on the stages of our own faith journey, as well as who and what has shaped us along the way. As we wander, we will tune our hearts to sing God's grace resting in streams of mercy never ceasing. And so rather than following the lectionary or spending our time in just one gospel account, we will be selecting uh, focal texts that focus on the significant moments in Peter's journey from becoming a disciple to meeting the risen Christ. Like many of us, Peter has a wandering heart. His journey is not polished or linear or perfect but he is always tethered to the love of God. 
When you look closely at Peter's story, you find Jesus at each step along the way, offering him abundance, catching him when he begins to sink, challenging him when he stands in the way, washing his feet, predicting his betrayal, and offering him love. This Lent, we're joining Peter in figuring out faith. We're not idolizing or vilifying him. Instead, we are hoping to wander alongside him, open to what we might learn about Jesus and ourselves by stepping in his shoes. This sermon series is a resource by a group called Sanctified Art. Um, So they help put together a lot of the resources Um, those were their words to set up what this Lenten study will be, but also the artwork that we see on the screen um, is by them. They're a wonderful resource and something I'm grateful for, just to peek in for all of you. They don't send me the sermons that I preach, unfortunately, Um, but they do help guide and shape. Uh, I really was excited about this idea of just following Peter, picking somebody who is like us and following the story throughout the Gospels because it can get a little muddy um, when we uh, jump from uh, gospel to gospel in different years to remember that we're hearing the same stories of the same people told from slightly different perspectives. Um, So I am looking forward to this Lenten series and the way it will unfold over the next uh, 40 days, and I hope you all are as well. Peter lived in a time of uh, an economy of scarcity, Um, people were always afraid that there was not enough uh, to go around. Rivers were overfished to feed the elite. Fishermen were among the lowest of merchants. Often, uh, they were people who maybe didn't make it through rabbinical school. They didn't have enough skills for a trade, and so they turned to fishing as a way to support their families. When Jesus calls, Peter uh, is hesitant. He thinks that what Jesus asks of him might be a little unnecessary. Jesus is being a little demanding in this moment. Cast out your nets, and Peter is tired. It's been a really long day in an overfished system where he's giving both most of what he catches and then the money that he makes away to people that don't need any more resources. And Peter's not totally sure in this moment why he should listen to this guy. He is respectful. He has had some interactions already with Jesus' teachings, but he also knows that this guy is a carpenter. Peter knows how this fishing thing works. This new guy is not going to come in and tell him how to do this thing that he has been doing for years. And so we understand that feeling when somebody comes in and they have oh-so-helpful suggestions. Where Have you tried this, though? But also, as much as we understand Peter's hesitation, he did just witness Jesus healing his mother-in-law. And so if you're confused because he's referred to as Simon in the story in Mark, and Simon a little bit in this scripture. He is Simon Peter. He becomes Peter. He's also still sometimes referred to as Simon. It is all the same person, probably, Uh, most likely. It's all Simon Peter. So perhaps with the healing that his mother-in-law just experienced ringing in his head, Peter responds, 
he throws the nets out. He discovers that life has a surprise in store for him. By doing what Jesus asks him to do, he gets to experience this amazing epiphany of God. And then Peter resists again. This is why I love the story of Peter. This is why I was excited about this series, because I get Peter. He is trying his very best to be the perfect disciple, and he manages to constantly fail in very spectacular ways. But he always dusts himself off, asks forgiveness, and tries again. See, I believe that Peter resists not out of disobedience to God, but because he does not believe in his own worthiness. He is living in a world that reminds him every day of everything that he lacks. I can understand this. I know what it feels like to have that narrative run in your head. To have the narrative that we don't deserve the abundance that God has in store for us. The narrative that we have nothing left to learn. The narrative that there is no way that this could be successful. Some of us, when we feel called by God, may begin listing all of the ways that we could not be called to this. We remember all of the doors that have been shut and all of the people that have said no. If you ever want to learn what people around you think of your worthiness for discipleship, I recommend going into ministry. Because quite suddenly, the moment you announce that you're maybe thinking about going to seminary, everyone will have an opinion on what you need to become in order to be the right kind of Christian. Because of course, you need to be the exact right kind of Christian in order to become the exact right kind of Christian leader. And everyone knows what a perfect Christian leader looks like, right? And I don't just mean the expectations that get laid out for you in school or by whatever governing body it is that you're becoming a part of. No, I think if you talk to any ministers, uh, if you talk to seminary students, if you talk to people in the process, they will all have stories about the expectations that began before they ever made it to a campus. My friends and I spent a lot of time talking about this. People had high expectations of how we would transform once we became pastors. Because in their minds, pastors embodied every good stereotype that culture holds about Christians. Pastors would become overnight upon enrolling in school the very best kind of Christian because of course we needed to be the perfect model. Many of us were told that we couldn't be pastors because we're single. So we better get married so that married people would trust us. We couldn't be pastors because we're young and nobody trusts young people. We couldn't be pastors because we were married but we didn't have kids and nobody trusts a married couple without kids. You were married and you had kids but your husband couldn't always go to church and so your kids might be a distraction. You can't be a pastor because you're too pretty and that's weird. You can't be a pastor because you are not pretty and nobody wants to look at your face every week. You're too fat and people are worried about your health. You're too skinny and you aren't relatable. You're not manly enough and men won't relate to an unmanly man. You're soft-spoken and Christian men should be bold and commanding leaders. 
Now that you're going to seminary, of course, you will be a person who stops swearing, stops listening to pop music, stops wearing shorts, stops drinking, stops watching R-rated movies, stops dyeing your hair, stops getting tattoos, stops hanging out with your gay friends, stops talking to your Jewish friends, expects all of your friends to convert. And then, of course, there was many of us that could echo the same story. You heard God wrong. You can't be a pastor. You're a girl. And so I think all of us have these experiences of what we think it means to be a disciple. What does it mean to be a perfect follower of Christ? We can think of a long list of reasons that we would tell ourselves or others would say to us about how we don't measure up. But I think in this time, I instead invite all of us to examine how we, like Peter, can affirm new and higher identities. In that moment that Jesus steps into the boat, he's inviting them to leave behind everything that they expected to be, everything they are told that they are, and they're instead invited to become who God calls them to be. And Jesus gives them in this moment a benefit that we don't often get, immediate results. He needed to show them the power of a God who overcomes an economy of scarcity and moves them into a kingdom of abundance. They were doing something that was new and immediately blessed. But Jesus needed to get them to say yes before they would move to the next thing. And so he offers them a miracle. Now, our moments when we decide to say yes to discipleship and have that confirmation might not be quite as dramatic. But we have miracle moments that constantly surround us that tell us, yes, this is the right way. I, throughout my complicated journey in ministry, have had plenty of people who have told me all of the reasons that I don't make sense as a pastor. But the moment that I begin to believe those, I always find a miracle moment, a voice that speaks into my life that reminds me that other people don't get to say what my discipleship looks like, that that comes from God. And so I invite you to look for those moments and to hold tight to the reminders of abundance, the reminders of a new way, because we have an incredible and difficult journey alongside Christ in front of us. Often people will use the season of Lent to give up something, to do an idea of Lenten fasting, either a literal fasting where you pick a day or to, to remove something from your life. I like to give the disclaimer and have a really honest conversation about what I hope the Lenten fast is not for you. I hope your Lenten fast is not a diet plan. God does not need your discipleship to fit in a certain body. And as a person who struggled with an eating disorder for most of my life, I am glad that I am freed from that belief that somehow I am more beloved by God if I look a certain way. I invite you instead to think of your Lenten fast as a way of removing what allows you to see your belovedness. 
Is it that you don't have enough time in your day to reflect on your discipleship? And so you need to remove a little bit of something else and make some intentional time for prayer or reading or study. Is it that you need to invite something new into your life? Add a book study. That you need to uh, spend some more time volunteering, find a place to give the resources that you have. Is there something about your life that you want to examine a little bit more? I'll be honest, I haven't figured out what my Lenten journey will look like yet. I like to be careful and open to what God is calling me, but one of the favorites I've ever done was the year that I chose to eat only locally for Lent, where all of my food, my produce had to be purchased locally, and all of the restaurants I ate out had to be locally owned. And what it caused me to do was think more carefully about God's creation. It caused me to think more carefully about how do I consume resources and how do I connect with my community? What part of your life could you maybe use some examining in? How could you maybe focus in on it this Lenten season? Remove what might keep you from living into your calling, but do not use it to shame yourself into what you think you're supposed to be. In this season, I hope you open yourself up to all of your imperfections, like Peter did. To ask all of the questions and get them wrong, to make some choices and be very incorrect about them. Because we are at a moment that is poised for unbelievable fruitfulness. There are those who would say that the waters of faith are overfished, that there are no new people who need to hear the good news of a God that loves them, that the work is pointless and it's hard, that there's too many problems to solve and so we don't need to bother to be in our community trying to solve them. And if it works, do we have the resources to keep it going? Can we figure out what we would even do with fruitfulness? Today is the day that we release all of our excuses about discipleship back into the lake. Jesus has called our name And it is time for us to answer. Amen.